Welcome to Between the Before and After, a podcast about the stories that shape us. I'm your host, Coach John McLernan, and each episode I bring you an inspiring guest with a moving story that shines a light on the power of the human spirit. Before we dive in, I want to let you know about two very important things. Number one, the stories shared here are often gritty, raw, and vulnerable, and very likely will include speaking about sensitive topics suited for a mature audience. Number two, this podcast is also broadcast live on YouTube, Twitch, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. So on whatever platform you follow myself or Freedom Nutrition Coaching, you have the opportunity to participate in this discussion during the live stream. And we encourage your participation both by commenting and asking questions. And so this podcast is about exploring the stories that take place between the before and after photos, not just in the realm of weight loss, but in all areas of life. So let's dive in. All right. I'm very excited for my guest today. Actually, there's probably never a time I'm not excited for my guest, but you know, maybe I'm extra excited because I've had the privilege of being a guest on your old show and your new show. Mm -hmm. And so now it's, and and you've been a guest on one of my shows previously, Wellness Unfiltered, Uh, but now it's time to explore you and your incredible life story, which spans a lot of things. Um, so rather than me trying to give a snippet of your life story, I'm going to let you share a little bit about, maybe actually start with kind of where you're at right now and what you're doing. And then we're going to rewind the clock and, and go back through how you got to this place. Cause you've overcome a lot in life. So I'm going to pass so, the mic over to you. Thank you. It's so interesting to this question. Cause I was just watching your intro, like, oh my gosh, I can't imagine overcoming that. Right. Just the people's right. stories on the intro or your story, because we're super familiar with our own. And I think sometimes we think, oh, it's not a big deal. It's just my story. And yeah, people's story are a big deal. They are a big deal. And um, they're just unique to us. So I am in Reno, Nevada. I We live full-time in an RV. We are full-time stationary okay. for people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we've been here for just over two months. We knew for the last few years we wanted to renovate an RV and move into it. And then when COVID happened, it was like, oh, we really want to do that. We were right. waiting until we got down to one child at home. And that happened about a year or so ago. And um, so for the last... We, we bought this RV about 16 months ago, but for the last two years, we've been looking, we were looking uh, more deliberately, I guess. So mm-hmm. I, we live full-time stationary. My husband works a normal job, so we don't travel full-time, although it has a motor. All we have to do is jump in the driver's seat and take off. Um, <laughs> yeah, which is pretty cool. Which is pretty cool. So we've been minimalist for over seven years and that gave, that felt so free to downsize our house and to continue that journey with um, our kids. And I'll, I'll get to that, but with our kids, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I usually throw that in last with our yeah. kids at home. It, it just, it created, we had so much less stress and so much freedom in the minimalism journey that living in an RV was kind of like a culmination of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's an interesting thing. And I'm back in school, which yeah, something I never thought I would do. I never thought I would do it because I didn't think I'd have an opportunity. That's the first right. thing. And um, about four or five months ago, my husband just said, look, you're never unhappy. You're like the happiest person I know, but I feel like you're unsettled. Mm. And I think that's because you're not really doing what you're passionate about and you haven't for a very long time. Um, I was divorced 17 years ago and, um, prior to that divorce for 12 years, I was a 
a birth assistant, a doula, a lactation consultant. I was apprenticing to become a midwife. So my whole life was surrounding pregnancy and childbirth and Mm -hmm. breastfeeding. And um, I loved it. I did it for 12 years and I loved it. And when I got divorced, it wasn't bringing in enough money and we had moved to a different state. So there was relicensing and the situation I was in, I had full custody at that time of, um, my kids and no support financially. And I needed to go back to work and it was urgent. It was the lowest point in my life. One of the lowest, lowest point in my adult life. Let's say that. Mm, yeah. Um, so we can dive into that at, if you want to. And I worked up to four jobs to support Oof. my family, support, support yeah. my kids. And I gave all of that up because it wasn't making enough money. And once I realized that one of my certifications had lapsed and I would, they wouldn't let me recertify. Like there was no, like you messed up, your life is stressful and we'll give you an exemption and let you maintain your license. I had to start over. I, I just let the dream die. I let, I let everything lapse Mm. and I stopped being a lactation consultant and I stopped being a doula and I stopped apprenticing in the hopes of becoming a midwife. And when my husband and I had this conversation four or five years ago, he's like, why, why don't you do it again? And I said, well, I mean, I couldn't work anymore and I've worked for the last 17 years and, Mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. you know, contributed half ish to our finances, sometimes more than half, sometimes less, less, but so I would no longer work and bring in money. And I I need like five grand to do the doula and the lactation and 20 grand. If I, if I continue on to become a midwife and he said, I want to do everything in our power, everything possible for that to happen. And so I am back. Thanks. He's pretty outstanding. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, No kidding. I am like ridiculously crazy about this dude. Uh, So it's good. I'm married to him. Yeah. So so I, I have, I really looked into the midwifery route and the reason that that's daunting is because it's like $22,000 and it's not like a semester or get a student loan. It's not like that. I would be doing um, home births and, um, so not, I would not be doing nurse midwifery. I would be doing direct entry midwifery. And I thought, well, I could go back to doing what I did for 12 years that I already know <laughs> that I love. It costs closer to three grand. Um, so definitely less than five. And it's about 10% of the cost. It's also faster. So I could be up and running faster, um, like six to 12 months instead of three years. Right, and yeah. all of the, my hours and all of my training and every basically everything I'm doing right now would count towards my midwifery degree if I mm-hmm. decide in the future to do that. So that is where I am at right now. And here's another interesting thing within that. For the last, you know, I've, I've been licensed as in hypnotherapy and as an NLP practitioner and coach. I have a lot of training in the coaching realm. And I point that out only because there are no regulations in coaching. Anybody can be a coach, slap a sign on their door and go forward. It's a very saturated market. And there are unfortunately a lot of scams and spams. And it was a really difficult space for me to navigate because it it feels like an uphill battle in coaching, just in coaching. Mm -hmm. I can still use all of that training. I love all my training. I I have amazing training and it will help me. But just being like, I want to coach you through this tough time was really difficult space to navigate for me. Like, are you a life coach? Are you a trauma coach? 
what what does that mean? What does that look like? Yeah. And you're wading through thousands of people who are also coaches. Um, so I'm also excited because I can use everything. I, I actually have a lot of pretty in-depth co uh, coaching training and NLP yeah, practitioner yeah. training that I can use in this. And one of the things that I kind of, I don't want to say specialized in, but really felt called to was helping people with grief and loss. And yeah. um, my stepmom committed suicide. My neighbor committed suicide and I found him. Um, he shot himself Oof. in the head and I was first on scene. Um, I've had three miscarriages. One was twins at 19 weeks and my oh adult boy. son died. So because I've had the ability to get through a lot of grief and loss, uh, I've real feel I feel very gravitated. So I'm at the end of a, um, specialty certification as a bereavement doula for parents mm -hmm. who have had a loss. So that's Which where is, I'm at right now. <laughs> yeah. Like, wow, there, there, there's like a lot there to dive into. It's like, holy cow, right. you just dropped a few, <laughs> just a few bombs there. Just a few you, bombs, yeah. Just a few bombs you've kind of encountered in life. But I think it's helpful to understand that because this is how you got to this place. Um, and, and you're right, right in, in kind of like the coaching space, a lot of people can say, hey, I'm a coach. And while you were sharing that in the back of my head, I was trying to think, what kind of coach could I call myself? You know, <laughs> like, right. You know, Right. I mean, I, I am uh, in the process now, thankfully, the, the certification that I have, I'm in the process of becoming board certified, which means yep. I'm entering a regulatory body because now it's available to us, which is really cool. It wasn't available before. Right. Um, but you're, you're, but you, I think about your life experience too, which has been unbelievable, like remarkable, you know, and, and you go by a uh, mom of 18. That's probably how you, I don't want to say it's your claim yeah. to fame, but like, let's say that <laughs> that's got yeah, a lot of people going, is. you know, that's pretty incredible how, how you've been that. So um, let's rewind the clock a little bit here because yeah. when they hear mom of 18, probably the first thing people wonder, okay, like, did you, you know, have 18 children that you, you yourself biologically gave birth to, or right. how do we get to that place? And actually maybe we'll go even one step further and go like, what, what was child number one for you? <laughs> oh, wow. Um, so yes, I have 18 children that I call my children. Mm -hmm. um, yep. 100%. I was told at just before my 16th birthday, I went to an OBGYN appointment because I had not gotten my period. And mm -hmm. that's old for a girl. You, yeah, 16. So my mom was concerned. Yep. It was like a month or two before my 16th birthday. I was a virgin. This <laughs> OBGYN was this very tall, attractive man. And the first person that touched me below the belt Right. And it was a great experience. So I want to, I'm, I'm pointing a few things out here. Frame, frame like, that, yeah. I want to frame that to say like, that can be a really tense, uncomfortable. And I've ne I don't think I've ever really had self-esteem or confidence issues. That wasn't my struggle. Definitely issues with trauma. And one of my traumas from childhood is sexual abuse and rape. So especially coming from where I had, although the rape didn't happen till later, but I had been molested as a kid growing up. So this could have been a really awful experience. And it was an incredibly positive experience, which I think was super helpful in my trauma healing journey. But mm. also he looked at me and still I'm 51 right now. And mm. I don't know what he saw or why he said this, but it was very pivotal. He said, I'm not sure what the issue is you will probably have trouble having children and you should expect to go through infertility 
interesting. Like I'm a kid who's just about to turn 16 who hasn't had a period. I've never had sex. Mm -hmm. Like that's, that was a very interesting comment. Like, but even now, what did he see in that vaginal exam that would have ever led him? Like, I didn't have an ultrasound. I didn't have laparoscopic Mm -hmm. surgery. I didn't like, I, the interesting thing is that it, that we get these little like drops in the bucket, these little like drop in things. I call them God shots, things that are said or done little experiences that we don't really think anything of at the moment that later are significant. And that was one of them. I did go through infertility Mm -hmm. and I did expect it. And I did expect to have trouble getting pregnant. And in my infertility journey, he said, you know, if, if you get pregnant, (laughs) you will, you have a higher chance of miscarriage. So that was another like little, one of those little God shots, like, okay, expect Mm -hmm. miscarriage to be part of your journey. If you get pregnant. So I did go through infertility. I went through seven surgeries, everything up to in vitro fertilization. And those surgeries are day surgeries. They're like, you know, uh, a biopsy of your cervix, a biopsy of the inner lining of your uterus, flushing of the fallopian tubes, laparoscopic surgery to um, see if you have endometriosis, which wasn't a big issue in my case. Mm-hmm. Um, vaginal ultrasound. But these were like, you know, you're under like a general anesthesia. You go home the same day. I was also maxed out for anybody that's gone through infertility. I was maxed out on Clomid and Provera. Uh, I was on the highest doses. I felt like someone had put me in a different body, did not like the body, felt like an exorcism needed to be done. And when we hit the point where he was like, okay, next step is IVF. I was like, not happening. This is not part of my journey. And I was married at 19 and this happened when I was 20. So as insane as I think that is having my own kids, nobody seemed to think at the time that that was a big deal where now I think if that were one of my kids, I'd be like, take a time out, man. and just wait. And no, don't, I would not encourage anybody to get married at 19. We were together. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, For a short time. And so, uh, and a huge part of the strain on that relationship, uh, one was being air force and him being gone half of the year. And the other was infertility, like nine, this, the infertility process, these surgeries were about nine or 10 months. Um, I told him I want to be weaned off the medication as he was weaning me off. He came into the exam room one day. He was like, I'm like five, five, eight to five, nine. I'm I'm Mm -hmm. over five foot eight. Right. He was a short Asian guy, super quiet, very introverted. He walked into the exam room and he hugged me, which was super out of character, like incredibly out of character. And he said, we've continued to run your blood work as we've weaned you off the medication. You're pregnant. Uh, You're pregnant off of the cycle that we put you on. You must have spontaneously released an egg. I don't know how it's physically possible. This is your miracle from God. Those were his words. And, um, he's, and he told me, expect to have a tough pregnancy and expect that in the future, if you get pregnant, you have a high chance of miscarriage. And again, what did they see? I think it's such an imperfect science. They're kind of like preparing you for the worst and hoping for the best. It's there, mm-hmm. you know, infertility is kind of like, well, see, that's a, that's like a tricky thing there. Right. right. Uh, because you, you, in the one hand, maybe you do want to prepare people or try to prepare people, but then the question being, I know you're certified in NLP and a few other things. So the mm-hmm. question that pops up into my mind is when somebody plants a thought like that, and I, maybe we can't scientifically validate this, but when somebody plants a thought like that, would that, is there any possibility that, that could increase the likelihood of this happening? You know, that you might have a mare's carriage. I don't know. know? I mean, great question. It's like the nature versus nurture question, <laughs> yeah. right? Like I, uh, there's, 
there's so much science and so much unknown for me. Um, I like to plan things and I like to have all my information and I probably have kind of a prepper mindset, which mm -hmm. is more of a prepare for the worst, hope for the best. Like I think you should always have a will and get your trust done and have life insurance. And then you don't need to worry about anything anymore because you're good. Right. Um, it was very helpful to me because I think when I, I was expecting it, what well, it didn't create stress and anxiety when I got pregnant or that I was pregnant that, oh my gosh, what if I miscarry? It was more like when that occurred, it was easier for me to process that loss. So right. I, but I'm a very silver lining person too. So in my mind, that situation created the silver lining of potential outcome that could be traumatic or negative that I was already prepared for. So mm -hmm. it wasn't that big of a deal for me. I, I gave birth to that daughter when I, I was supposed to be in a birth center. I ended up my, I had a very intuitive midwife who just looked at me and said, something's not right. And I want you to transport to the hospital. And I did. I transported the hospital. I was in pre-labor. I was 37 weeks. Um, they did like, she, she is now 30. So let me preface this by saying okay, she is, yeah. she's 30. She just turned 30. Um, yeah. they did all these ultrasounds and I, uh, declined amniocentesis. Um, and they let me have her and they, they just kind of told me it was a teaching facility. It was the Dartmouth Hitchcock medical center in Lebanon, New Hampshire, incredible facility. And, they let me know that when she was born, they would do a bedside. They would hit the hot button. A lot of people would come in. They asked me if students were allowed to come in. I said yes. And they said that they would, when she was born, they would immediately put her in an isolate right next to me and evaluate her. And one of two things would happen. If she was critically ill, they would hand her back to me and let her die in my arms. Mm -hmm. If they felt like they could wow. save her, they would leave the room with her so that I was, again, I like being prepared so that I was prepared. So they did the bedside evaluation. First of all, I started to push and I know they hit the hot button because someone said, I remember somebody saying something and saying, um, her body is starting to push. And I, you know, I was like down, I was leaned over and mm. I sat up and there were 21 or 23 people in the room. And I was like, holy cow. Holy cow. I mean, this is a teaching. Welcome to the right. show. Um, <laughs> no kidding. It was, it was a little, but you don't care at that point. A woman does right. not care. No. Um, and I wouldn't have any way. It was just very unexpected that there were that many people in my room. So right. I give birth and they do the bedside evaluation. I can see that she's having a lot of difficulty breathing and they whisk her away. Nobody comes and talks to me for nine hours. And Ugh, that's the head, a tough nine hours. That's a tough nine hours. The head neonatologist came in to talk to me, which I didn't know was unusual. Um, and she said, had we known how sick your daughter is, we would have handed her back to you. She is on every life support there is. There are 29 babies in the NICU. She is the most critical and she's considered term because she's 37 weeks gestation. Mm -hmm. There are babies that have been born at like 24, 26 weeks that are a pound. And she is more critical. Mm -hmm. We do not expect her to survive her first 72 hours. And uh, you will hold her for the first time after she's passed away. You can't touch her. You can go and sit there, but you can't touch her because she needs to use every ounce of strength towards getting better. And, you know, there's this whole kangaroo care is what you should do mm -hmm. and touching them and letting them smell you and all that stuff. And at the same time, 
it, they, they burn calories when they're being touched. So there was this right. really critical balance for her. She turned the corner at day three. She was born with a, a lung disease called severe hyaluronic membrane disease. She was also born with PDA, which is the valve between the heart and lungs that during the birth shuts and hers did not shut. She couldn't right. go through that surgery because she wouldn't have survived it because of the lung disease. Um, they gave her surfactant for her lungs um, and then they used a medication called Endosin to shut the PDA. And they told me we can only give it three times and it shut after time two. And like okay. if they give it three times and it doesn't shut, we cannot do the surgery. Like your baby's going to die. There right, are all right. these things wrong with her. And here's what we can try to do through that experience. I realized, I mean, I had realized prior to this experience, but like I was done with any kind of infertility. I was done when I found out I was pregnant with her. I was done when before I knew I was pregnant with her. IVF <laughs> was not my route. And if I couldn't get pregnant on my own, that was it. So incredibly long story, much shorter. I got pregnant seven times. Okay. I lost so, and this three. was your first one. This was my first your one. Your I, I miscarried my goodness, three. That was one heck of an experience. Okay. Right. I miscarried three and I gave birth three more times at home with a midwife. Two of them were water births. My focus though changed after that delivery. Between be, between the infertility and her birth experience, um, and the fact that this guy at when I was almost 16 told me I probably wouldn't be able to give birth to kids. I was content with the fact that I might not be able to give birth to kids. It was hard. It was mm, hard. Mm. It's hard for women to process that. But I had given birth once and I felt okay with that. And also because my most, the most pivotal person in my life was my third grade teacher. And I knew, I knew from her, you could make an enormous difference in the life of a child, even in passing, just by being yourself perhaps without even knowing that you made a difference because that was my teacher. Mm. Um, and so I really wanted to do foster care okay. and I did foster care. And um, so I gave birth four times. I adopted four and I had two kids that were long-term in my house. And mm -hmm. then I was divorced again. So um, that's when I moved to Reno, Nevada and I had sole custody of my kids uh, when and I got divorced. Then. How many kids at that time? There were 10 kids total and eight at home. Okay. But I, and I was working up to four jobs. I mean, it was really, really tough, but I kept doing foster care. I adopted one more and I took in three more. I, I call them extras. They were the kids that I would have adopted if I could have, but the opportunity never presented itself, but they stayed long-term in my home. So mm -hmm. I, so that leaves us to, I, I was up to 14. At that point. At that point. But having said that, I have never had more than 12 in my house at one time. So okay. kids kind of came in and out. Kids, you know, um, you know, I had that eight and then I had up to 11. Then one would leave for whatever reason and another would come in. I had 10 to 12 kids in my home for years. Okay. Years. Which I mean, like I've got one. Right. <laughs> and and like one feels like a challenge. Maybe the, maybe the first one's the most challenging. But the, it's to the biggest like, change, right? It's the biggest right, life okay, change. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. After you get past that, you know, and I'm like, clear, clearly, you know, in this episode, we're not going to be able to dive into every aspect of your no. story because there's so much there. Um, by the way, did you write a book or anything? I did. I did write a book about my life okay. growing up. So it went up to me finding out I was pregnant. I, I was 21. So it was zero to 21. That's the book. 
Right. Because there, there's things that, about that, the first 21 years of your life that I'd want to dive into, but you know, maybe, maybe it's helpful to turn people towards the book and say, you know what, uh, what's, what's the title of that book? It's called Hello, My Name is Warrior Princess, and I email the PDF. I'll email the PDF to you okay. so that you have it, and then you can email it to anyone who wants it. So I, you can buy it on Amazon, but <laughs> I, I just send it to people. So that highlights. And I mean, basically, the highlights from that are I was born in 1970. The 70s were pretty rough as a whole general rule. Mm. I had two addict parents. My dad was a raging, violent alcoholic that I'm really thankful I didn't have have to spend a lot of time with. My mom was more food and uh, abusive relationships. And that was, she herself wasn't really abusive. Um, it was more that I feel like she was caught up in her own personal cycle of trauma and abuse. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as a child in that situation, I got that spillover. I saw her being yeah. abused. We were subsequently abused by people. So I was Definitely. It was a rough upbringing. I am we not minimizing say, it. It was rough. Yeah. Uh, like in, in this case, almost like abuse was normalized in your mind because it was what you knew. Mm -hmm. And not to say this is a good thing at all, but that's, you know, I think about how like patterns are laid down, especially in those developmental years. And that was, that was your quote unquote normal in a sense. Yes, it was. And interestingly, a lot of the times, because having, I've had 15 years in foster care. I spent 12 mm -hmm. years as a parent and then I actually was hired by a nonprofit. I had so much experience that I was hired by a nonprofit to recruit and train foster parents. So actually a lot of my training from the past about suicide awareness and trauma, getting through trauma, my initial training all came from, I had to become a trainer of trainers mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. in all of these really like crisis intervention and trauma reduction and suicide prevention and all this awareness. I was training people in those areas. So, mm. um, so yeah. This, this yeah. points to something kind of, kind of, I guess, fascinating in a sense. And I wasn't going to bring this in the conversation, but I was like, so I, I've interviewed the author of this book here, Men Fight For Me. I'm not sure if okay. you've heard of Alan Smith. No. Um, and Jessica Midkiff, his co-author, she was caught in, uh, I think, for maybe 10 years in sex trafficking. So this book is about like the role of authentic masculinity in ending sexual exploitation and trafficking. And why, why I bring this up is because I think a very, very, very high percentage of, first of all, a very high percentage of traffic victims are female. Um, yeah. Over 80, might even be over 90%. Yeah. A very high percentage of traffickers and purchasers are male. But uh, on top of that, the majority of them are, come from the foster care system. So they come Correct. from this place of brokenness, which leads them into this into this life. And so um, I feel like you, you and Alan would have a really fascinating conversation as well. Oh, um, yeah. So I might, I might have to make that connection. But just this yeah. idea uh, you know, of how foster care and trauma and childhood trauma can lead people down these paths they might not otherwise choose, you know. How did you, so thinking about it, because I mean, and uh, we don't have time to go into the details necessarily, but like you said, you've experienced a molestation as a child and, and rape as a teenager. Um, and then, you know, uh, all kinds of trauma. How did you, how did you get past that? How do you work through something like that? I was terrified of becoming part of the problem. So one thing about kids is that usually they defend their parents because they mm -hmm. love them and their parents should be their parents. It's a very normal thing even in a terrible situation, I don't feel like I was in that category. I wasn't defending my parents. I knew that it was wrong. CPS came to our house when I was probably around 10. And when she drove away, I didn't know why I wasn't in that car with her. I knew innately that 
the life I was experiencing wasn't right, although I had nothing to compare it to. Mm -hmm. So I didn't know what that meant as a kid. I just knew that it was wrong. And I had really positive examples. Uh, my third grade teacher was the first one, but then I had others. And after the, after I was raped, um, it was between my junior and senior of high school. I was 16. So it was the summer after that OBGYN appointment and I didn't report him and I didn't, I mean, I fought him. So I stood up for myself in the aspect that I fought him. But after it happened, I didn't report it. And I would be the first person to strongly, strongly encourage a girl to report it and to add that to his list. Like he was going to jail for lots of things, the guy that raped me. But that should have been added to that list. You know, he mm -hmm. should have been listed as a sexual predator. And I didn't do that. In that sense, I didn't stand up for myself. And once that happened, in my mind as a 16-year-old, you know, I was I wanted to wait to have sex. Mm -hmm. And it, it wasn't on my radar. And I had boyfriends and I was kissing and, you know, fooling around mm -hmm. a little bit. But I did not want to do that. And once that was taken from me, I kind of thought, like, what's the point? And so, I mean... At the time, I thought I was promiscuous. I that that's probably an exaggeration, but in that next couple of years, I had several partners, and I set it up. I set it up to fail, and I was creating my own dysfunctional loop of like, yeah, I know this is something you that you want, and it's not something that I want. And if you push it, and it ends up ha not push it in the in the sense that they're forcing, but like you know, push the envelope a little, push the like coerce me mm -hmm. i'll eventually say yes like i knew in my mind of it like what's wh why not what what am i what am i saving at this point right right and if we have sex i will lose all respect for you and that will be it i'll never talk to you again and i like that's an easy pattern to get into and i hit the point my first year of college and i think i was exposed to thankfully some like the myers-briggs test and some really good therapy options and i lived with a a distant cousin who was like my mother's age who did Reiki. And I didn't, I didn't have any idea. I knew she could do massage. That's it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and I was just exposed to different situations. And I said, yes, yes to therapy. Yes to Reiki and massage yet. Like, yes, I said yes to experiencing these things. And through me being just kind of a young kid, 17 or 18, you know, um, saying yes to those things, it, it started a healing journey. And I realized okay. that, I, and I graduated high school at 17. I was in college at 17. I was very young. And in that process, I realized that I was creating my own pattern of dysfunction. And if I did not want to perpetuate dysfunction, even if it wasn't the same as my parents, my like I wasn't mm -hmm. an alcoholic, like my dad, I was still creating my own. And I was so repulsed by the thought of creating some sort of dysfunctional loop that I started to heal that trauma. Don't get me wrong. We all create our own dysfunctional loops. And since then, I, I am, you know, it's like one of those things you want to be this great parent and you can be, and you're also going to screw them up a lot, even when you're a great yeah. parent. Yeah. Okay. So I have definitely contributed to my own dysfunctional loops mm -hmm. um, that a lot of which stem from that childhood trauma. And I have been a great mom who has screwed up my kids. Mm -hmm. we're all human. So, well, I mean, I, I think, and maybe we could reframe that a little bit and say like, cause mm -hmm. of course 
you know, is, is that looking at it from the perspective of if a perfect parent wouldn't script their kids at all, but it's like, there's none of us that can ever really there's no truly such be. thing. Right. right. And so no child like gets out of childhood unscathed, no matter nope. how good our intentions are. But, you know, if, if we can take a lesson from that, it's this idea that right. like human beings are more resilient than we give ourselves credit for. I mean, look, you, you emerged from like an, an immensely difficult childhood. Yeah. Like, one that you, you you know, and then immensely difficult teen years, like going through the, the trauma that you went through, you know, and then, you know, hearing these sorts of things for like for a young mind, prepare yourself for, for suffering and loss and death at a very, very early age in your life. I mean, mm-hmm. it speaks to just having this incredible resilience and strength of character. I Tenacity mean, for sure. Yeah. And I, I think as far as parenting, because I was so aware that you know, we're not perfect and it's not possible to not one way or another create our own. It may, it may be dysfunctions isn't the right word, but our own issues, we are living our own story as parents while we're creating this, the beginnings of our child's story. And it's a very tough balance to keep living that story um, with our own traumas and healing. At the same time, we're trying to help these kids create a, a positive story. So one thing that I did through that is I owned my mistakes and I said, Mm -hmm. I was sorry. I also never emotionally or physically abused or neglected my children. I didn't do any of the, I, I never drank. Um, they've never seen me drunk. I like, I didn't do a lot of things that could contribute to the possibility of negative things happen or of me being a worse version of myself. Mm -hmm. And I knew it was possible to break a cycle And I wanted to, I was so geared towards breaking that cycle that I did. And in that, knowing that all I can do is apologize and own the fact that I'm a very imperfect human trying to do the best job. And within that, I could be a really fantastic parent that owned my mistakes. So, uh, yeah, I, so I had 14 kids when we left off. And then my daughter, who is now 30, about 10 years ago, she was just turning 21. Um, she and a friend of mine started fixing me up on dates and I humored them. I was not, I was, I was, I was a, a resistant part. <laughs> yeah, I, I was cool being single at that point. And, right. uh, so it was fun. It was really fun. I mean, because I'm thinking like from the perspective of your daughter, how do you, how do you describe you? you know, Hey, there's this, you should, oh. uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, she was like, mom, don't talk about how many kids you have. Don't say you have 14 kids. Don't send them to your website. <laughs> don't, um, like I had all these, like, please just let them get to know you first. Like talk about running and talk about work and talk about anyway. Um, yeah, yeah. But how cool that she thought that I was a good person that deserved to have a a healthy relationship and that my picker was off is what she said, which was 100% true. And um, yeah, she started fixing me up on dates. So these two started fixing me up on dates. So they would meet the person. They would, they had this whole system. It was fantastic. (laughs) And basically once they got to a certain point, yeah, well, (laughs) I mean, they kind of felt like if you want to date my mom, you have to go through this process and shockingly people signed up like yeah. several. So Dane was one of the people, he was actually the first person that contacted them, but not the first person that I met. And I didn't know at the time that from the first text that I sent, cause once they got through that screening process, my daughter and, and our friend would give me their number and I would send a text and I would meet them for coffee. 
from that first text, we have been together ever since. And Dane had four kids and his wife died. So that is how we got 18. Uh, so definitely death and loss and grief, um, having full custody of my kids for the over half of the last, you know, 16 years and just, yeah, there's been a lot. And, and I had eight kids living at home shortly after we met. And when we moved in together, it was back up to 12 again. And so (laughs) uh, we're down to one. They're, they're all adults except for one now. So I think the grocery bill must have been off the chart when you got it was called. more than a mortgage. Yeah. yeah. The grocery groceries were definitely more than our rent and mortgage or mortgage payment. Yeah. 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 Yeah, for sure. It was crazy. I mean, people for Thanksgiving are like, yeah, I'm having 15 people over for Thanksgiving. And that's my everyday life. That was my <laughs> everyday like, yeah. life. Thanksgiving I, every day. Yeah. I well, uh, like, no, because Thanksgiving yeah. <laughs> is like yeah. four days of prep, but the like I I ran a volume business, right? Everything I did was volume. So, and in that, that was part of our overwhelm when we combined families and combined stuff and he moved into my house and we had 12 kids at home. It was so overwhelming. You know, he just came to me at one point and said, I don't know how to help clean. We just have so much stuff. And that's, that stress is what triggered us to start getting rid of things. And that was like pre- I don't know anything about minimalism. It was pre Marie Kondo. It was pre all of this stuff. But somehow I was doing online searches on how to reduce stress through downsizing your belongings Mm. and stumbled across this world of minimalism that I didn't know existed and thought, well, like we'll see. But it was great tips to move me in the right direction. And within six months, we had gotten rid of 85% of what we owned, which sounds impossible when you think about your own house. And I'm telling you, (laughs) when you start pulling things out of attics, basements, closets, and garages, it is outstanding how much stuff like we're all at some, we're all hoarding. We're all hoarders on some, we see that show and we're disgusted Yeah. until you go through the minimalism process. You're like, I could be on that. I am almost on that show right now. Right. And so, Uh, well, I'm, I'm chuckling yeah. because because my, my wife has managed to accumulate quite a few possessions over the 16 years or so that we've been together. And yeah. it's it's a challenge because it's like every one of those maybe has a memory or an emotion attached to it. And parting with it can feel like potentially parting with a memory or an emotion or things like that. So I know in her case, it's a concern of if I get rid of this, will I lose the memory that was associated with this thing? You know? It's, yes. Uh, no, you don't get rid of the memory. Ever. And I took pictures of several things. I mean, there's a process to help your brain go through that. And one is you take a picture of everything that you own that you're getting rid of so that you can look because honestly, like it's like hearing a song, you know, that song strawberry wine comes on in Walmart and I'm like, takes me right back to high school. You know what I mean? Right, right. Or a smell. There are uh, pictures do the same thing. They take you back to that feeling. And so I think it's important to document them in some way and then let them go. Mm. Um, If you don't, if you don't use them or love them, they need to go. Having said that, I think there are three things that I've gotten rid of that I wish I hadn't gotten rid of. But one of those categories happened 17 years ago when I realized that my licenses had lapsed and I wasn't going to be a doula and a lactation consultant anymore. And I was working four jobs and I was overwhelmed and 
kind of emotionally in my adult life definitely hit my rock bottom. I got rid of all of my books. I got rid of these these handmade quilts that someone ha- in Alaska had made for me. And, wow. you know, now, 17 years later, I I can't even tell you how sad it makes me that I don't have, I can't pull those things out to start this part of my life. To, basically, it's a continuation of what I did before, and I can't get that back. And that was pre-minimalism, though. So sometimes we let go of things that we do regret or that we do yeah. wish we hadn't, and then it's two pairs of shoes. So, like, it's really not a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> the shoes aren't so much. Well, so, yeah. You know. So what's like, I think, you know, I get like the what's next question kind of pops up, but I mean, because re- we know like in one sense you are obviously we're working towards this uh, bereavement doula um, certification, uh, which I think is incredible because you've, you've been through so much loss yourself. And I mean, there's, there's a whole episode <laughs> that can be recorded just around how you navigated all the different losses you've experienced in your life, you know, uh, encountering your, your neighbor who'd committed suicide, things like that. Like just the shock of seeing that and how do you, how do you even like process that? But uh you know, you've built up so much valuable experience, you know, mm-hmm. and so kind of actually one step back, what's a family reunion like for you? <laughs> we don't have them, <laughs> but you know, I, I have very little contact with my family. It's a really large, very disconnected, dysfunctional family. My mom was the oldest of eight kids and I am in touch with two of them and my grandmother. Mm. And I was close to my great grandmother before she passed away. So in a huge family, I have very little, I have very little relationship with my mother, no relationship with my younger sister. And that's not how I want it. Mm-hmm, However, mm-hmm. part of that was to keep myself emotionally healthy. Right. And um, part of that was when I wrote the book, which was 2016, um, it made my mom and my sister, basically it was the icing on the cake. It was the last drop for them to feel comfortable being emotionally abusive and hurt or disgusted or what they're allowed to feel, whatever they feel. Mm -hmm. Although they, they hadn't read the whole book. They just read the very beginning, but um, it gave them kind of a license or a go, the go light to become very emotionally abusive in which I said, I'm glad that you're, you are entitled to your feelings. You should write your own book on it. Your perspective is not wrong and I am not going to have contact with you anymore. Um, I have a zero tolerance policy on anyone who is emotionally abusive or really negative. And Mm. I think it's important to like, if you're healing from your own trauma, which generally most of us are, one thing I would recommend is to cut out anything in your life that's negative. And that's anyone who pops up on your social media stream, like just cut it out. It doesn't mean you have to have only people with the same perspective. I have people that have really differing perspectives politically or religiously. And I think that can make great conversation Mm -hmm. when it creates confrontation is when it's not acceptable. So, you know, our family reunions, um, Dane has two brothers and a sister. They all live here locally. So mm. we see them. He has really very little extended family outside of that. Um, definitely he and his siblings have not been in contact with extended family in a really long time. Most people mm-hmm. have passed away, including his parents. Um, and it's just our kids and 13 of them live here in Reno. So we, I thought okay. we're going to get this RV and like 
travel the nation and like visit kids for a couple months here and, <laughs> right. and yeah, like yeah, yeah. they won't leave. So uh, we just keep yeah. staying here. Yeah. yeah. So I have one in RV. Alaska, one in Africa, one in Arizona and one in Georgia. Okay. And then one's passed away. So right. of 18, 13 live here locally. So that like we're hanging out. And so yes. family reunions are, we have really, really fantastic relationships with most of the kids. I would say yeah. I don't have a good relationship with three out of the 17. Mm -hmm. And one is a different situation. Um, she's actually not quite 18. I can't say anything about her situation, but mm -hmm. because of it, I stay more peripheral intentionally. Right. right. So, I mean, that brings us like, I've got really, really great relationships with 13 out of a possible 17 kids. And I think that mm. that's really fantastic. And again, I'd have great relationships with all of them, but adult kids need to process their own stuff and they go in and out of, of how close they are and how much contact we have and when we mm -hmm. have it. And I would love it to be different, but I'm also totally fine respecting the fact that some of them have different boundaries. Right. Yeah. And, and are struggling. Yeah. So with an, with an RV, there's not a lot of room to pack, you know, 13 <laughs> other. Humans we have more adult kids visit us now that we've moved in. So we moved into, we had a house, we were normal people yeah, with yeah. a house. And two months ago we moved into the RV. I think part of it is that we are home. Dane and I right. are home. Right. Wherever and you so are, yeah. it doesn't matter where we are or where we meet, or even if I go to their house, like we are home. And the other thing is that I, I think we have, downsized to 250 square feet um, of our most prized possessions, the things that we love and treasure the most. So it's really a representation of that home that we mm -hmm. really tried to give our kids growing up. And they visit us more here. Uh, I, I looked at Dane after like the first month. I'm like, we need to set some boundaries on adult kids coming. <laughs> and we have yeah. had eight people in here. And it's not that I don't want them here or we can't fit them here. We have a way to yeah. do all that. It's just like, uh, like I want some space every once in a while. So we had to do yeah, like, yeah, yeah. you cannot stay till 11 PM and you know, you have to leave by nine and you have to please call us before you come over. And yes, we'd love to do game nights. And, but definitely we we have really outstanding relationships. So family reunions, it's like a constant thing, but we rarely have more than like eight kids together at the same time. Mm -hmm. So getting more than yeah. eight kids together at once is hard, but we have right. up to eight all the time. So yeah. yeah. Well, you you just have one heck of a story and we've barely like scratched the surface. I think there's so many things we could have dove into. But you know, if you were to just just from all that you've been through, you wanted to share just one thing that people could kind of take away from hearing about your story that would maybe encourage someone who might be going through a difficult period in life. Uh, what what would you share with people? You have a hundred percent success rate of making it through bad days, and this too shall pass. And the other thing is that whether you decide to do work to get yourself through your own trauma or you take it a step further like you and I have done and you want to help others, even just by sharing your story, even getting through your trauma and not 
turning it into a business or mm -hmm. <laughs> creating creating some way to help other people where it's a monetary gain just by sharing your story when we get to a certain point that we make it through that tough day and we've processed some of our trauma the goal becomes to make it faster easier and more supported to the next person in my mm -hmm. experience a hundred percent of people that i have talked to once they get to a certain point in their trauma they want to turn around and offer their hand the, the leg up, the hand mm -hmm. out to the next person to make their journey just that much easier because you understand what they've gone through. And just like in college, college professor will tell you, you just have to be a chapter ahead of the class. Yeah. Yeah. You don't have to be, I mean, like I, I know I've worked through a tremendous amount of trauma and grief and I'm way on the other side of it, but you only need to be a chapter ahead to start helping the person behind you. Yeah. Well, that's amazing. You know, I really super appreciate that. I appreciate your openness, your vulnerability, sharing your story. Um, this is this is not the last conversation we're going to have. <laughs> Definitely going to have to have you back sometime to share more of it. So really appreciate your time uh, being here today. Ah, oh, I love it. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for tuning in to Between the Before and After. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like, share, subscribe, or leave a review because that helps this podcast to reach and inspire more people. I love exploring the stories that take place between the before and after, the powerful experiences that shape who we become, and I love human potential. I love the possibilities that lie within us. So whatever you may be up against, I hope these stories inspire you, because if you're still here, your story's not done yet, so keep moving forward. Anyone can come from any place of brokenness and destitution and build an amazing life.